I used to walk to school every day along the creek by my house, and I'd drift along, and I was very into winemaking at the time, and so I'd check the ripeness when appropriate and in season of the wild grapes that I would harvest for my for my wine or the um, blackberries or the elderberries, depending on on the season. Needed to set myself up to make some illegal booze at home. And uh, I'd walk along, I'd have a notebook in my hand, of course, as always, and I, it was part of my daily practice to write a poem in the short walk to school. So I would sometimes be inspired, I'd stand by the creek. And it turns out that I was a curiosity to others. One day, a man that I'd seen several times coming and going stopped me and says, what do you write in your notebook? And I have to say here that uh, writing in a notebook was a pretty innocuous activity compared to what was going on in the creek. Like the rest of California, we were and still are experiencing a epidemic of homelessness. People were living all along the creek, and it was a kind of a squalid scene next to some pretty, you know, nice houses. Nicer than the one I was living in at that part of the creek. I'd go up sometimes towards the campus in my canoe when the water was high, and uh, there was a whole homeless village behind the behind the yard where we store equipment for the school. And so I didn't think that writing in a notebook was likely to attract that much attention. And, you know, though I sometimes go around dressed like a hobo, I uh, was heading to teach class, so I at least had on a button-up shirt and looked semi-respectable. You know. But anyway, so he asked me what I'm writing in my notebook, and I tell him, you know, I teach at the university. I try to write a poem on the way to campus every day. Sometimes I just jot down some thoughts, notes about class, that sort of thing. And he says, oh, I thought you were doing an elderberry survey. The elderberries are a native berry plant to the creekside that had been kind of uh, wiped out for different reasons. And uh, people were concerned about them, and there were elderberries that were planted along the creek that they're trying to get to regrow on here. I'm like, yeah, they're doing all right. I know they're regrowing here. I sometimes make wine out of them. It's like... You sure you're not counting the elderberries? And I thought, well, I just told you that in some ways I am. It was a little bit of a mysterious interaction because he remained pretty suspicious, whatever the whatever the conclusions he came to. Um, my answers did not seem sufficient to allay his curiosity about my behavior that he'd obviously been witnessing for kind of a long time. Had he been truly curious, he could have followed me and noticed that he was my neighbor, that I lived ten houses away from him. I told him that I lived down there. I told him that I worked at the university. I told him exactly and specifically what I was doing in a lot more detail than I probably owed somebody I didn't know. 
He didn't seem to believe it, I think. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he'd had too much time to construct a counter-narrative to believe the truth. It reminds me of that Tom Waits song, What's He Building in There? It's a great song, you know, it starts out, the guy observes that he gets, the neighbor gets magazines, that he doesn't wave to him, that he took down the tire swing and doesn't have kids or a dog. And then he uh, can observe those things, of course, but then he moves into things that he's quote-unquote heard. And it turns into a pretty extreme narrative that he's doing something sinister. And uh, it's interesting because at that time, Tom Waits was uh, was interested in Harry Parch and this composer I've mentioned on the podcast before who created his own musical system and composed and performed original works uh, and invented musical instruments to make them. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of creaking and strange noises on the, strange noises on the soundtrack um, of the album. It's hard to say it has, well, I was going to say that it's hard to say that it has music, but obviously it has music. It has sounds composed with intention, and it has some conventional musical instruments on it as well. It's challenging and unusual, though. It's interesting. I mean, I guess ultimately what it doesn't have is melody, and melody is like narrative. And the song, of course, is about this neighbor is going to is going to construct a narrative that suits his uh, predetermined conclusion about the guy and he's looking for he's looking for signs um, to construct that narrative but it's interesting because most of the things are like sounds flickering images he he only sees bits and he constructs the narrative out of those bits because um, the what is he doing guy, the guy who's doing, I don't know what you call him, is not providing a narrative of his own. He's not coming over and saying, hey, I'm not doing an elderberry survey, I'm writing a poem. But my guy, even when I did say that, is clinging to his narrative. So that's interesting. Tom Waits, I think, by the way, in the song, I mean, if you're interested in him at all, you should listen to the song. You've probably heard it if you're interested in him at all. But I think it, the the music or the soundtrack maybe for the song so perfectly fits the theme of the song. I think it's brilliant. I think Tom Waits is a really unique and interesting composer just in a general way. I once was teaching Tom Waits' uh, poem slash song uh, ninth in Hennepin from his 1985 album Rain Dogs, and it was in a class where um, we study genre, literary genres, and so it was um, an attempt to think about what a composition like that was. That's maybe a poem, maybe a song, maybe something else. And I asked the students to describe the genre that Waits was either working within or constructing. And one of them said that it was crazy avant-garde circus clown blues. <laughs> oh my God. 
I don't know what that means, but I'm pretty sure it's right. I guess the point is when we don't have categories for things, we invent them. In a previous podcast, I was talking about seeing a man whom I regard as my twin around town at different intervals throughout my life. And, and you know, I'm sure that I've invented some story for him and I truly know nothing about him. What strikes me about this story and seems different is that after, I don't know how you want to state this, confronted with the truth, my former neighbor seemed unwilling to accept it and he wanted to negotiate with me for something else. I was really taken aback by it because I was sort of in my own headspace trying to finish a poem, thinking about what I was going to teach. Otherwise, I might have decided to indulge him with some lies. Now, when I'd come down to the other end of the creek, or right before I'd crossed the road, it was getting near that industrial area where I I was talking about storing the equipment for the school. There was a large kind of a compound with a, a house and a large shop, and it was adjacent to this commercial building. And uh, the guy who lived there I saw all the time seemed to be a fellow traveler to me. He was wearing, you know, work clothes, and he'd have a, a knife on his belt. And, you know, he looked kind of like... I looked when I wasn't going to school. He was sometimes wearing a welding jacket or sleeves, and you would have guessed that he was a welder. Um, but he was a sculptor, and his little area there was his uh, sculpture studio, and he had a like a retail or gallery space for it over on the commercial side of things. And, of course, I could see all of that. I could see that when he was welding in the front yard that he was often welding on a large piece of public art that he was constructing. I would say I had a different relationship to this guy because he would always wave and he would say hello to me. And then one day I paused. I was looking at one of his sculptures that was kind of visible through the fence. I was writing in my notebook. And he said, did you get one? And I said, uh, I hope so. And he says, that's good. And this was years before the whole Pokemon Go phenomenon, by the way. So he didn't think I was taking out my phone and getting a Pokemon. This was 10 years ago. So he seemed to understand and recognize uh, the process of capturing rather than constructing inspiration or an idea or a moment or a poem. And after that, uh, when we saw each other, we had a friendly acquaintance. How you doing? How's it going? And the other guy, when I'd walk by him, he would not engage me. He would just kind of look away from me. A very strange experience. The sculptor involved in an artistic endeavor 
had room within his conceptual framework to understand that um, I was practicing or attempting to practice art in the world. And the other guy thought uh, anything that you don't get paid for must be some type of deception. The Tom Waits songs remind me of this, um, and this reminds me of them. Uh, the second song I mentioned, Ninth and Hennepin, starts off, well, it's Ninth and Hennepin. Sounds very specific. The person obviously knows where he's at. He says, the moon's teeth marks are on the sky like a tarp thrown over all this. And broken umbrellas like dead birds. And the steam comes out of the grill. And you can visualize that sort of city setting very, very easily. And it's something that anyone could have observed. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it's the guy walking with the notebook. And it provides a useful lesson in rhetoric or art. A very specific, concrete, measurable detail lends a tremendous amount of credibility to any kind of a narrative. It's similar to that recognizable melody that definitely makes a song a song. But where that goes in the poem or the song, whatever you want to call it, which is very similar uh sonically, by the way, to what's he building in there. Where that goes is inside. It moves from things that can be seen outside, like the bricks are all scarred with jail ta jailhouse tattoos. You can see the, the graffiti that you see in an urban setting. But it moves inside. It moves into a bar... There's a girl behind the counter with a tattooed tear, which of course links to, develops, and personalizes that image of the jailhouse tattoos outside. And all of this seems to, to move into a sort of deep understanding that seems to um, have been there before. Then there's this sound of the Southern Pacific going by, and uh, that sound of the train going by seems to call the direction of the poem um, back outside and back outward. And the narrator at that point says, and I've seen it all through the yellow windows of the evening train. And what he's saying there is he's seen only a tiny bit of it. He's seen enough of it to form an impression and that his subjectivity has filled in the rest. The yellowed windows of the evening train is a beautiful image because it, the train's just blowing by. You look out the window and you see this and then you have a, a narrative that's constructed by your subjectivity. It's yellowed. There's a filter and that filter is your subjectivity and it colors everything you see. We see the things in the way we're organized to see them. What's interesting about the song, though, is that it might be wrong. It might be invented. 
but it doesn't turn away. It attempts to understand, absorb, um, identify with a setting that somebody going by on a passenger train might not identify with. For years, I commuted into Boston on a on a commuter train. I went through some really sketchy areas of the of the state and would see things going on outside, see various you know levels of street crime and things happening, and you just go by that. Um, and I understand the impulse to characterize that in a certain way, and I understand that that's a misrepresentation, but it's not just looking at your newspaper. When my neighbor thought I wasn't the elderberry man, he was just done thinking about, about me. When my student needed a generic category in order to talk about the Tom Waits song with more insight, and when she recognized that there wasn't an established category for it and that she needed to invent one, she invented one that was useful. Avant-garde circus clown blues is more than just clever, it's useful. I think she recognized the element of a minor tonality contrasting with a major tonality that defined the blues. She recognized um, that something about it was engaging sort of contemporary art music. That's why she called it avant-garde. And she recognized that there was a kind of a circus zaniness to it that was important to it. And also that Tom's voice coming through the little... He, he sings through um, in these songs, or in the um, What Is He Building There song, at least through a uh, little megaphone, like a cheap megaphone. His voice has a kind of carnival barker sound to it in both cases. And I want to argue that her experience with art that allows her to uh, occupy somebody else's subjectivity, even though colored by her own subjectivity and her own experiences in the world, gives her a flexibility and plasticity of mind that allows her to create, absorb, and understand new categories. I guess it's what we call an open mindset, you know. And the other person that I'm talking about had categories that were so fixed that even after the truth of a new category presented itself to him, he was unwilling to accept it. Now, I don't really know him either. I'm doing a certain amount of projection here too. Maybe he just thought that I was unusual and chose not to engage me anymore. But the idea is that the exchange of subjectivity we engage in in art is not so much about projecting onto the other person when the speaker in Ninth and Hennepin is looking out the train window. Keep in mind that there's a glass there and he's also looking at himself. And he imagines that world that he's, that he's describing 
as looking back on him. And it's as much as anything a point for self-reflection. And self-reflection is where we change. And art is where we're provided with the beautiful opportunity for that to happen. And that's why I do all of this stuff that I do. I'm trying to will myself into a better state of being. And I don't know how good a job I'm doing, but that's what I'm trying to do. So anyway, be well. It's nice checking in with you. And uh, hopefully I'll see you next week. Tell your friends.